Welcome to the Ambassadors for Christ Outreach Ministries podcast. So we are Christ ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. On last week, uh, we talked from John chapter 10, verse 10, uh, the week prior, I'm sorry. Uh, and we talked about, it says, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus says, I, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Just as a brief pop quiz, uh, there are two separate ways that preachers and teachers and uh, uh, pastors uh, dissect or approach the word of God. Uh, both of them sound the same. What are those two ways? It's exegesis and eisegesis. Fantastic. Uh, it took a lot for y'all to get that out your lips, but that's fine. Uh, Esergesers and Isergesers. <laughs> Exegesis. Exegesis, again, is when we draw out the text meaning in accordance with the author's context, meaning we read the scripture and we understand it the way that the writer actually wrote it. Amen. Eisegesis is the exact opposite. When we get up and we talk about scripture or you at your desk and you quote a scripture to somebody, you're trying to prove to them that they are a sinner and you read it and you impose your own interpretation of the scripture. That's eisegesis. All right. And we declared that AFC will be a church of exegesis. Fan. Fantastic. I'm glad somebody took some notes. Uh, we talked about who is the thief for, for years and years and years, me included. Uh, we have taught over the pulpit that the thief cometh to steal, kill, and to destroy, and we said the thief was the devil. We were wrong. We uncovered in week one that the thief is the preacher. We uncovered that when the preacher fails to study the word of God and when he gets up to do things for his own personal gain, to line his own pockets, to line his own uh, fame, he becomes the thief. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be under no thieves. All right, all right. Because that, that starts at the head, trickles down to the feet. And I don't want to be in company with no thieves. Uh, but uh, so we talked about the thief. We talked about uh, who the porter was and the porter, uh, uh, the porter openeth, the Bible says. We talked about that was the Holy Ghost. I'm giving you a very high level. We're going real fast, real fast. Uh, but we talked about the door and who the door is. We talked about Jesus is the door. Amen. Amen. So I, I promise you, if you go back, because uh, I've already talked to some of us and we've had a wonderful time in looking back at the scripture. Please do a favor. Do me a favor. Listen to the podcast. Get your Bibles and your notes out. Get, go buy you a concordance. If you don't know what that is, come see me and I will point you in the right direction uh, so that you can study the word of God on your own. But this week, we're going to be handling yet another scripture that has been widely misused. When I say widely, I mean I have done this so many times. I've been, before I was a preacher, I was a praise and worship leader, okay? Uh, and I, I would hate to say this and reveal this to you all, but since we in the, the era of revealing, uh, that when you become a good uh, seasoned praise and worship leader, this is going to sound bad, but I'm going to put it out there. Um, you know triggers. You understand what can be said to make you shout. I have learned, it's bad, it's bad. I have learned to feed from your faces. I can look at you, Rosie, and I can say, uh, weeping man do it for a night. 
but joy cometh in the morning. And just how you put your head down like that, now I know I got you. <laughs> I'm finna sit in that vein for a minute. <laughs> Weeping, man, do it for, and I get all in your face. I go, shout on down. You know, we do that. We do that. You learn, you learn the triggers. You learn the triggers. Uh, uh, turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, God is going to do it for you. All you got to do is turn around three times. The first person that drops a tear, that's the person you go to. You feed off the, this is what you, this is the unfortunate things that you learn. I'm being totally transparent. I knew exactly what to say, when to say it, how to say it to get people to shout. In most cases, I knew when I shouted, it would make other people shout. So what I had to learn was, because I know this in my flesh, I have to make sure that I'm worshiping God in spirit and in truth. It was not about moving the people. It's about worshiping God. So when you see me, because I developed this for two reasons. When you see me have my eyes closed, that's for two reasons. Because people got ugly faces when you're in worship. Not that you're ugly, okay? I'm not calling y'all ugly. God made everybody beautiful, okay? But I'm just saying, y'all look a little dry sometimes. You look a little raisin-ish, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> look like raisins, okay? Uh, so so because, because people will, will, will distract, close my eyes. Also, I do it because I don't want to feed off of what you're reacting to. So I'd rather it be between me and God. I'll look this way. I'll look up at the sound booth. I'll look over here. You never see me looking at you guys while worship is going on, only because I don't want my flesh to get in the way. I've had to do this. This is how I cope. Everybody else has different coping mechanisms. But in the same sense, in the same vein, we as preachers and teachers have gotten up over years. And we have said in high moments uh, where two or three are gathered together in the name, God says, I will be in the midst. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, put it up on the screen. It says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, the Bible don't say that. The Bible don't say that. The Bible don't say that. This week, we will discuss uh, yet another scripture that has been widely and frequently taken out of context. You know, I've heard many prayers and many sermons and praise breaks and people shouting and where people have used this scripture to encourage the church. Before I understood the verse in its right context. I never really noticed the abundant use of it in prayers, but now that I know the context, I, I, I hope uh, that I don't show it on my body, but I probably would cringe a little when I hear it thrown in and out of a well-meaning prayer by a well-meaning Christian. And it's funny uh, that that's put there because last week, uh, not putting anybody else down, but uh, you all are, are changing. I'll just say that because I know this goes on podcast. Uh, be careful uh, when we go to different places uh, that you don't show on your face when somebody uses one of these scriptures out of context. Okay? Don't get me in trouble. All right? I want to be able to go back to these churches and fellowship and praise God with them. All right? So don't, 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 don't throw your nose up. All right? We'll talk about it afterwards. 
The problem with the misuse of this verse is that the people misusing it are not necessarily wrong in what they're saying, that Jesus is with us when we pray and, and gather. No, they're not necessarily wrong. They've just taken it out of context. Now, as a reminder, the goal of looking at misused verses is to encourage us to take a closer look at the scripture and learn the context of what we're reading. We talked about there's three ways at minimum that you should be approaching the scripture. You should be reading the context around it. You should be uh, understanding the people and the audience that the writer was uh, looking at and talking to. Uh, You should also understand the Greek or Hebrew translation of certain words and the structure of an architecture of the verse that is written. Uh, This is how you should approach the scripture. I'm not here to lift myself higher than any other preacher or pastor. Okay, because I know some of us has been under some wonderful pastors. I am not here to defame my colleagues in the ministry. I'm simply here to right the ship and ensure that I am not the thief. All right. right, Y'all catch that tomorrow. All right. Shameless plug. Please make sure you check out the podcast. It's AFC. You can check it out. Share it with somebody on your week. It is a great promise to be sure that when two or three are gathered together, that God says he will be a God in the midst. Christ communicates to us that when the church has gathered, they can rest assured he is spiritually present with them. He said that time and time again. But the question is, in the context of Matthew chapter 18, for what purpose is the church gathering? Is it for prayer in Matthew 18? Is it for worship? Is it for fellowship? It might surprise you to realize that it is for none of the above. Amen. Now, let's be fair here. Certainly, I've said it again because I want to be clear. Certainly, because people will take what you say and not, right, okay, like we do the scripture. Certainly, when Christians gather for prayer and worship and fellowship or even evangelism, they can take courage and have confidence in the promise of Christ that he would always be with them. Look at that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. You can read that on your way home. So in general, we have every reason to believe that he is with us in our individual sense and in our corporate sense. If not for any other reason, to assume that we should be using this verse in the sense that we have, I would question each of you in this way. If we're going to say that we're using it correctly, That means that if God only shows up where two or three are gathered together, then what happens when I'm at home praying by myself? Or even better, let's take it another step. If if God can only show up where two or three, he was very specific. He didn't say two or many or more. Two or three, one, two, three, three of those. If God only shows up where two or three are gathered, then what happens when there are more than three people? Are you telling me that we've been in church for an hour now and God has not shown up? Because we didn't meet the qualified number for the Holy Ghost. All right, all right, all right. So that alone should encourage you us to stop using this verse in the manner in which we have. So when looking at Matthew chapter 18, we, will, we need to recognize that this passage has a specific nuance to it. It is not talking about a prayer meeting. It is not talking about worship. In fact, it is not talking about 
uh, generic Christian fellowship either. Jesus is talking about church discipline. Now, for everybody that's going to listen to this and see this on Facebook, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is instructing the disciples on how they and all who will follow him should handle situations of interpersonal sin and conflict. His instructions about this immediately follows his parable about the lost sheep. Again, we got to check the content text of the scripture. The parable of the lost sheep, which emphasizes restoring someone who has gone astray and proceeds. So it's in the middle of that parable. And then it precedes the parable of the unmerciful servant, which is about being willing to cancel and forgive an outstanding debt. So how can we use this verse to work to to say that when two or three are gathered together in worship, that God will be in the midst. Right. Therefore, the themes that are present in this context are forgiveness, restoration, yes. and reconciliation yes. with a brother or sister who has sinned against you or who has gone astray. Jesus lists several practical steps if you just read the chapter that should be taken to reconcile or restore a broken relationship between the saints, a relationship breached or shattered because of their sin. The first step is a private, when somebody say private, private. Church folk need to learn how to deal with issues, interpersonal issues, privately first. You, when somebody do something to you in church or when they say something you didn't like, that does not mean you hold a conference call after church was over. Just because it didn't go your way does not mean that you talk to everybody else you disagreed with, including the pastor. If you don't agree with something I, did, I said, you need to go where? In private. Essentially, Jesus is teaching that interpersonal sin and conflict should, be, should not be ignored or dismissed because Christians in general should be committed to maintaining healthy, wholesome, and fully reconciled relationships. When was the last time you had an issue with a neighbor, whether they are in here or outside, and you took care of that thing? Some of us don't talk to people uh, now that we haven't talked to in 50 years because they said something they shouldn't have said. All right. Some of us is not friends with people anymore because you trusted them with the secret and because they spread it your secret all over the world, you ain't their friend no more. But when was the last time you went in private mm -hmm. to reconcile the relationship? After all, this is ultimately why Christ died, so that we first could be reconciled with God and second, reconciled to one another. So we must guard and protect our relationships from sin, especially those relationships between believers. Some Bibles, translations, uh, it omits the words against you. So the text simply reads, if your brother sins, go and show him his faults. 
This is because some ancient manuscripts don't carry the word against you in the text. But either way, whether the sin is committed against you or not, it is still necessary for Christians to address the issues of sin in the church. Hmm. So when somebody come tell you that you shouldn't be doing that, what are you supposed to do? You ain't going to tell me how to, I'm 30-something years old. I got a house and I'm going to get the neck action going. You can't be church hurt if the church corrects you according to the word of God. The last couple of words is very important. According to the word of God. For even as Paul says in Galatians 6 and 1, brothers... If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him how? Gently. Mm. Therefore, Jesus prescribes an initial step of a personal and private conversation between Christians, the goal of which is forgiveness and reconciliation. It is necessary. It is a necessary confrontation and conversation that should be done in humility and in love. Keeping the issue private. And in the smallest possible community is, is ideal so that any misunderstandings may be cleared up and for reconciliation to take place in a way that doesn't allow the sin to spread to others. If you don't believe it or not, there are people that can be sitting next to you and because they're not fully committed to God and they still got one toe in sin and the other toe, I mean, they, to they foot is spread. They got their big toe in sin and their pinky toe in God and you wondering why things ain't getting right in your life is because when you leave church, you go to eat with them and you go and dine with them and you hang out with them on Saturday and yes yeah, sin spreads like a cancer yes, furthermore if it is cleared up forgiven and settled at this level this personal level it is unlikely to become an issue that is gossiped about yes, or discussed in unhealthy ways amongst others the reason why people say uh that they have church hurt and they leave the church i understand it right i understand it but they are they are misunderstood as well they are under misunderstanding the structure of christian discipline it's because they went to somebody of higher level and they confided in them with their issues and that individual openly spread it that information across the church you have to be careful of how you handle the lives of your neighbors. Ideally, this is how all interpersonal sins and conflicts should be handled so that the case can be closed in step one. So step one is handling it privately. However, this is not always possible. Jesus states that if things can't be resolved at level one, it is necessary to include others. Matthew 18, verse 16, he says, but if he will not listen, take one or two. Somebody say one or two. We didn't say get five or six. We didn't say go get the whole soprano section. We didn't say go get the whole usher board. One or two. Others along so that Every matter may be established by the testimony of two 
or three witnesses. There are many purposes for this. First, it adds a level of seriousness to the need for reconciliation. Secondly, witnesses can ensure the confrontation is handled appropriately if the matter should necessarily proceed to the next level. And this should happen only if step two fails. We'll get to step three. Third, these two or three additional believers can serve as objective third parties. So if Aisha has an issue uh, with Miss Janie and they can't handle it in private, then they go get Minister George and Elise. Minister George and Elise shouldn't take Aisha's side because that's her mama. And they shouldn't take Miss Janie's side because they're her friend. They have to act as the third party, meaning the two or three that you grab. Watch this. It's going to be very, 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 very important. The two or three that you grab have to be spiritual people. They have to be spiritually mature. Don't go grab your friends. Yeah. Grabbing the right people. Uh Uh-huh. They are to be a third party who can come along and assist in the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. Jesus is obviously teaching that unrepentant sin is a serious matter amongst Christians. And the Apostle Paul would later warn the church in Corinth to handle sin matters quickly and exponentially, lest It says in Corinthians 5 and 6, it ends like this, a little yeast, meaning work, through the whole batch of dough. In other words, sin that goes unchecked or ignored in the house of God can be devastating to the witness of the church and can be destructive to relationships within the Christian community. And we thought that we could come to church as we are. Whoopsie. Yeah, when that mother told you you should have got a longer skirt, she was in the right. Now, the Bible say, don't say you can't wear no short skirt, right? But you do not want to be a distraction in the house. In fact, it may unnecessarily influence others to sin as well. As similarly stated before, if the incident can be resolved here at level two, this is when it's going to get real muddy. Then those who are involved should rejoice because, and agree to keep it private and promise not to ever, 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 ever bring it up again. So at level two or at level one, if you have done what you need to do, everybody's happy. You guys have high-fived and hugged and cried and all that stuff. Keep it private. And the two and the other people, keep it to yourselves. Die with with with, with it. Amen? Amen. But in more severe cases, we're going right down through the scripture. Where forgiveness, reconciliation, and restoration don't happen, 
The matter must necessarily proceed to a more somber and serious step. And that's step three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, here we go. Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That's verse 18. What are you saying, Pastor Marcus? Here then is the widest circle of accountability possible. This is the last possible step that we can take. What was initially a private was private has now become a more public issue. And here is where the spiritual maturity of the church will be put to the test. That means in these moments, there is no Facebook Live. Amen. When we bring stuff before the church at this stage, there is no Facebook Live. I'm telling y'all, there's a rule in the house at AFC. I'll snatch your phone up out your hand. We'll deal with it later. Logically. It would seem that the church leadership would be made aware of the situation first so attempts at reconciliation could be made at that level. Perhaps some of them were already involved in step one or step two. But either way, if reconciliation is still not attained, Jesus essentially commands that the problem be brought before the membership. Why? Again, because unrepented sin is a serious matter for the one who is refusing to acknowledge and turn away from it. If you sit in church and you keep being a hellion, the Bible tells us that we ought to deal with it in three ways. And if you don't listen in the first two, we got to bring it before the membership. Uh Furthermore, It is at this level that the broadest possible efforts can be made to attempt to reach out to someone who has gone astray. Here is where everyone who has a relationship with the unrepentant can reach out to them in an attempt to win them back. It is not about the flesh. It is about their soul. And if you see somebody's soul being drawn away from God and away from church, it is your duty to reach out to them. It is your duty to go out and draw them back into the sheepfold. This is where the church truly embraces what it means to be a forgiving and forgiven community. Uh Admittedly, not many churches today are willing to practice this step, mainly because they misunderstand its motives Uh or confuse it uh, with some form of inappropriate judgment and punishment. Now, if you don't follow steps one and two, don't go jumping to step three. Don't interrupt my service to bring no mess up over this pulpit if you ain't followed one and two. But none of that is true. I might as well, while I'm here, I might as well dispel another scripture while I'm I'm already going here. People say uh, that the church should not judge because the Bible says don't judge lest ye be judged. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, the Bible don't say that. Yeah, it's written like that, but that ain't what that means. The scripture, the the church has an obligation to make moral judgments on cases of unrepentant sin 
within the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 5 and 12. Moreover, none of this should be seen as punishment since Christ already received the full punishment for our sins on the cross. Therefore, we have no choice but to see this as an act of grace. A desperate attempt to reach out and restore a fallen brother or sister who has wandered astray. Remember, this follows Jesus' parable about the lost sheep. And so this is what Jesus is saying to the church should be committed to. Loving the lost sheep that has gone astray by going out and looking for it. He talks about leaving the 99 to go get the one. The goal here is reconciliation, not punishment. Mercy not only comes to God's people, but it proceeds through God's people as instruments of his love. Imagine the rejoicing that would fill the house, the church, if indeed this step ended up being successful. Imagine if we could be a spiritually mature church where if we had to get to step three and this individual or group of individuals are standing before us and we reconcile them. Imagine uh, the spirit of God that would be in this place because again it is not just about telling somebody that they're wrong but it is about the reconciliation process. We should not be okay with leaving people in sin. Just to save face, just to be along with what society says. I don't care what they say outside of these walls. If it's sin, it's sin. And there is no sin above any other sin, so we all just some dirty sinners. But if we come to church and we continuously do this thing, what we call worship, and we listen to the pastor and we shout amen in the right points and we lift our hands when it says hands up high, wide open, wide as the sky, and we cry and we spit and we levitate, we glow, we do all this stuff, and we never change our lives, we are worthless Christians. We get oil put on us and, and we're a demon before we get oil and we're a demon after we get oil. We just become a lubricated demon. That's it. Like the prodigal son returning to his father, there would be rejoicing. There would be celebration. There would be a thanksgiving, a feast going on. I would suspect, y'all like that lubricated demon, didn't you? I would suspect that such an event would transform a congregation. Jesus knew this. And I suspect this is why he prescribed it as a command. He didn't say if you felt like it. He didn't say wait. He said do it. But that which is ideal doesn't always become reality. And Jesus knew this too. Isn't it amazing? Now that we read this scripture, how Jesus knew that we would be filthy rags in the church, that we would just be doing the craziest stuff in the church today. How how did he know that? He gave us a process of how we address sin in the church through love, though. And Jesus knew this. So, 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 So he told us, he told the disciples that if the unrepentant refuses to listen, or respond to the loving attempts of reconciliation that preceded 
from the church body. Here it is. This is going to be a hard pill to swaddle. Then the church would have no choice but to recognize that this person has chosen to harden their hearts and exclude themselves from the church due to their refusal to turn and receive forgiveness. For anybody that has ever seen anybody get kicked out of a church, if they followed these steps, the church was in the right. According to the word of God. Read verses 16 through 20 yourselves. Highlight it. Note it. Put a thumbprint on it. Do whatever you need to do. Because God tells us we act in private first. If it cannot be reconciled, we get one or two other people. We act in private again, but it has a third party. And then thirdly, we do it amongst the entire membership. And if that person still has the devil inside of them and they don't want to change and they want to continue to be what they are, the church is to exclude them from the church. That hurts. And in Jesus' day, when he says uh, to look at, he says it's equivalent to seeing them as a pagan or a tax collector because tax collectors were often corrupt in the Roman system of that time. These would have been people who were clearly outside the recognized community of faith. The church would have no choice but to formally remove them from the fellowship. Now, This does not mean that everyone who remains in the church is perfect. We all are sinners. You got sins. I got sins. All God's children got sins. Uh But that's not the issue. The issue is about the one who hardened his or her heart towards their sin and refuses to acknowledge and turn away from it. When that happens, the church is obligated by none other than Christ himself to dismiss them from the recognized community of faith. This is a somber and humble but necessary step. As Christians, our goal should never be to give up on someone. So even if the church has to move to exclude you from the fellowship, They should also be committed to still being able to attempt to reach out to you and pray for you and come to your aid to win you back to God. Uh Because, again, it's not about the membership of the church. It's about you reconciling your relationship with God because we represent God, not AFC, not the church. We don't have the stage and a platform. What we do when we make decisions, we make them in the name of Jesus on behalf of heaven. So we should always be reaching out. We should always be working to pray for you and go and meet with you and continue to work uh, to get you back into the sheepfold. Here then is where our often misunderstood verse finds its proper context. After establishing the church's authority and heavenly sanction in taking such an action, Jesus promises his presence in a unique way. Here then in the passage that we look for today in verse 19 and 20, it says, Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, 
it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Uh Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Uh Jesus is saying that whenever the church is pursuing and is involved in a reconciliation process with someone who has refused to repent, they can rest assured that God's blessings and his presence is with them in their efforts. It is not about your prayer or your praise or all that other stuff. In other words, as the church renders judicial decisions on matters of right and wrong that are based on the truth of God's word, they should be confident that they are doing the right thing and that Christ himself will be right in the middle of it with them spiritually in the presence of their midst. That's what this verse is pertaining to. After all, the Bible says that God is the God of reconciliation. And he is the one who has commanded them to be agents of reconciliation as well. The church is acting on God's behalf and therefore has divine sanction as it seeks unity and asks for God's blessings in something that is surely a difficult process. This then is the true meaning and the true context of the phrase where two or three are gathered together, I will be in the midst. It's all about God's presence in judicial matters of reconciliation. Now, when we hear Matthew 18 and 20 misused from this day forward, Uh don't immediately run and tap that person on the shoulder and interrupt service to correct them and tell them that they've used it in a wrong manner. They usually mean well. For it is true, I must say again, that when two or three believers are gathered or even when thousands of believers are gathered, that God is an omnipresent God, that he has promised to bring the, show the Holy Ghost and, and come in our presence and be in our midst of worship. So they're not necessarily uh, false in what they're saying, but when they put it in context of Matthew 18 and 20, the Bible don't say that. But the same can be said for someone who is seeking God's face in private. Indeed, Jesus himself taught in his Sermon on the Mount that we should be regularly practicing prayer in the confines of our quote-unquote prayer closets. For the Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward us. That's Matthew 6 and 6. God is surely with us. We hope that this message has blessed you and can carry you through your week. For more information, visit www.afcoutreach.com.